The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We are going to talk a little bit today about a few different things. Um, We're going to talk about the Pilgrim Fathers and talk about them a little bit, kind of toward, toward the end. Uh, but first, before we talk about Thanksgiving, uh, what it is, the history of Thanksgiving, just a little history about it, and uh, the pilgrims who, who came over uh, in the 1600s, uh, we are going to first look at a psalm. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 105. The title of my sermon tonight is Remembering the Providence and Provision over his people. Remembering the providence and provision, really, of God over his people, okay? That's, that's what we're going to be looking at today. And I'm telling you, whether you believe me or not, as I was preparing for my message, I was just praying, and I was in my office, and... I had no intention whatsoever to talk about Psalm 105 at all. Um, uh, The sermon, you know, just little bits and pieces of it were going to primarily be about Thanksgiving, um, the history of the pilgrims, um, the persecutions that they faced in England. And, but I just felt like, gosh, like, you know, I, there's, there's like more, there's more. I don't want to just give you guys a history lesson, although I love church history. It's one of my favorite topics. Um, but I really wanted to, to, to really give you something more solid. And so I was in my office and I was just going through, I just kind of sat down at my desk and, and I literally just opened up to Psalm um, I think it was Psalm 1, some other psalm, and then I was like, eh. And then, and then I flipped over to Psalm 105, and, and in the New King James Version, the, the top of it, uh, the, the title or the heading of Psalm 105, which is a very long psalm, by the way, uh, is the eternal faithfulness of the Lord. And the very first verse says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Um, and because... I wanted to talk a little bit about Thanksgiving. Um, I thought, okay, that sounds good. But then as I started to read Psalm 105, it became so incredibly clear that, that this psalm, at least from my perspective for tonight, I could not ask for a more fitting psalm and, and scripture text than Psalm 105. And the reason why is because Psalm 105 is all about retelling the story of God's providence and provision over his people, Israel. Psalm 105 is considered um, a historical psalm. There's actually only about three of those. Psalm 105, Psalm 106, and then don't quote me on this, but it's either 76 or 78. And the reason why this is called a historical psalm is obviously because it actually recounts historical events 
that took place throughout the history of the nation of Israel, whereas most of the Psalms, they're their prayers. Um, and they're typically prayers of David and some other people. Um, and you can pray them today. Uh, and, it, and it seems as though perhaps you may have made that up yourself. But this Psalm right here, this is a historical Psalm that really talks about the faithfulness of the Lord, his providence and provision over his people from the very beginning. And so I wanted to, I wanted to uh, start, first of all, um, if you don't know me, my name is Jacob Gantos. Um, I am uh, the, the director of the very small, probably unknown perhaps, uh, Bible College here at Maranatha Chapel. We used to be affiliated with Calvary Chapel Bible College, but the school has since closed down, or I should say moved to a different location after being there for decades and decades. I went to and graduated from Calvary Chapel Bible College, really special place in Marietta, so I was really sad when I saw it uh, closed down. But our school was started uh, by Pastor John Cook and Pastor Ray back in 2010, and then in 2016, um, John, Pastor John Cook asked me if I wanted to uh, take over the Bible college after I had taught for him at his request um, a church history class at Maranatha Bible College. Prior to that, I don't remember the year, but a few years before 2016, I taught church history at Calvary Chapel Bible College in Marietta. And um, I will spare you the details uh, as to how I came to fall in love with the study of the history of God's people, although it's an amazing story. Um, I will say, though, in short, that my love for church history specifically was sparked, no joke, by the story of William Bradford coming over on the Mayflower in 1620, landing at Plymouth, establishing Plymouth Colony, William Bradford being the first governor of Plymouth Colony, and writing what some of us may have heard of called Plymouth Plantation, which is basically his diary of the happenings within Plymouth Colony, the struggles, the relationships with the Native Americans there, and all the rest. And it serves as like an incredible historical source because it literally was a diary. And so it wasn't necessarily him re re recollecting what had happened, but he was keeping this, this almost daily. And so we get a lot of our information from that. But anyways, that story specifically sparked within me. I don't know why. I was going to Horizon College San Diego, finishing my Bachelor in Biblical Studies degree, which I haven't finished yet. Um, but during that time, I, I took a research and writing class, and I was assigned this guy that I had never heard of to write a project about, and it was William Bradford. And I had never even heard of him before. Um, and I just started researching him, and, and I don't know what it was, but in, in that kind of study of the, the church in England at that time, the persecution and the pilgrims coming over, it just sparked this, this deep, deep interest and appreciation for those who have gone before us, whom God used to preserve his word that you and I are sitting reading today, 
the people that he used to proclaim the gospel so that a few hundred years ago, we have the ability and the freedom to actually sit in this church today and worship God freely without really the threat of persecution. I have just fallen in love with church history over the last number of years, and, and it's not just a head thing. Like, this is, the Lord has used his word and the study of the history of his people to actually even, like, revolutionize my family. Uh, my wife can attest to you that, and her and I talk about these things together, talking about the Reformation and, and all the different translations of the Bible and the different languages and, and the movement of the gospel throughout history. And the Lord has really used it to not only shape myself, but has, if you can believe this, has taught me to be a better husband, has taught me to be a better dad. Because when you study church history, you realize that without a doubt, Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And when you see that actually lived out throughout history, it gives you this, this boldness, it gives you this faith, it gives you this confidence that you, in 2023, you are part of something that is so massive. You're part of something called the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus does not just say, boom, and everybody is saved. He chooses in his will to communicate the saving message of the gospel through human agents like you and I. And we see that preservation of the gospel, that preservation of his word throughout history. And it's so amazing to me um, and uplifting and, and really life-changing. So today, just to overview the sermon so you know what to expect, we're going to look at God's providence and provision over the people of Israel through Psalm 105. And then we're going to look at Joseph as a type of Christ, as described in Psalm 105, and how Joseph is this beautiful picture of Gentiles being grafted into the Jewish nation and then God preserving that nation until present time. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. So uh, first, just a little, a little history on, on Thanksgiving. There's a lot, there's a lot of different things. If you go to the internet and look up history of Thanksgiving, I 100% guarantee you you're going to read all sorts of negative things about Thanksgiving. The history of it, um, the, the wars between the Native Americans and the colonists, and, and you're just, you, you really can't escape it. Um, and so what I wanted to do um, is go to the source of some of these things um, and, and at least just give you kind of a basic idea um, of where this concept of Thanksgiving came from. So on October 3rd in 1789, George Washington said, we recommend to the people of the United States a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts 
the many favors of Almighty God, who is the beneficent author of all the good that was, that is, or that will be, that we may then all unite in rendering unto him our sincere and humble thanks. And here's a key piece right here. For his kind care and protection of the people of this country previous to their becoming a nation. And so George Washington was thinking back to prior to the United States becoming an independent nation, looking back to the colonial days. And, um, and there is a letter written in 1621 uh, by a guy named Edward Winslow, and he simply wrote to a friend. He lived in Plymouth Colony, and he simply wrote a letter to one of his friends just describing what was happening. Um, and so I, there's a, it's very, very neat to see all the details in here, but um, I'll kind of just sum it up here. It says, after we had gathered the fruit of our labors, they, meaning people in the colony, for in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, that is our, our guns, many of the Indians coming amongst us and among the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some, 90, with some 90 men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor, that is William Bradford, and upon the captain and others. And although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, speaking of history, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. That was a letter written in 1621. So it kind of gives you an idea of, of what the setting was like. But that's kind of a brief little, little history, kind of, the, kind of the seeds of this concept of Thanksgiving. Um, it didn't necessarily originate with the pilgrims, but this idea of feasting with the Native Americans um, and so on and so forth, that does, in a way, originate uh, with, with the Pilgrim Fathers. Okay, so let's go ahead and let's get to Psalm 105, and let's go ahead and start in verse 1, and we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 6. So again, Psalm 105 retells the story of God's providence and provision over his people Israel. By providence, I mean his sovereignty, his rule, which you'll see so clearly here. And by provision, I mean his faithfulness specifically to his promises toward us, which is relating to his care and protection. So when we think about his faithfulness, his faithfulness is not necessarily just to us. It's really his faithfulness to his own promises that he has made concerning us. Does that make sense? That's, that's really the beauty of his faithfulness, is that he is not just faithful 
toward us just because he loves us necessarily. I mean, that's true, of course. But what he's being faithful to is his word, which is settled in heaven. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but his word will never pass away. So when we experience the love of God and the provision of God, what we're doing is we're experiencing the fulfillment of his promises toward us. And that is a beautiful thing, that we not only serve a God who just has the ability to love us the way that he wants, but that we serve a God who has the ability through anything and everything that happens in this world, still somehow be able to fulfill and honor his promises no matter what in and through our lives. That is a God that is sovereign and has sovereign rule over all things. And we're going to see this so clearly in Psalm 105. So let's go ahead. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray before we uh, read the word. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. And we want to thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that as we read your word, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would focus our minds, Lord, and that you, Lord, would speak through your word. We know that your word promises that your word does not return to you void or empty. And so, Father, I pray that which goes out today would, would birth, would produce life, all things pertaining to godliness in each and every life that is represented here, Lord. That is my prayer. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace toward us. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, so verses one through six. If you have a Bible, uh, please follow along with me. Verse one says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of his wondrous works, glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face evermore. Remember, remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth, O seed of Abraham, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones. So he's kind of setting up the psalm here by saying, we're going to talk of the wonderful things that God has done in, in, pre- in preserving you, people of Israel, Abraham's seed. And so in verses 7 through 12, we look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we look through verses 13 through 15, a little bit specific of how he protected and preserved his people uh, through the early days of Abraham and Sarah. And then verses 16 through 22, maybe 25, in part, we're going to be looking at Joseph. And then that's pretty much going to be the end of what we read here in Psalm 105. 
and then we're going to jump over to uh, the typology, how Joseph is a picture of Christ, and how Jesus, sorry, how Joseph is a picture of the body of Christ in that Gentiles have been grafted into the nation of Israel. And so here we go. So in verse 7, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. This is key. Verse 8, he remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he's talking about here is very, very specific. This is one of the only psalms out of all 150 psalms that specifically state clearly the land covenant that God promised to Abraham about the land of Israel. And here it is in verse 11, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When they were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it. Why is that interesting? That's interesting that he says that in verse 12, because God made this promise to Abraham that he and his future descendants would, would be given the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, even though there weren't that many of them. And so here we're making a point that the Lord is making a point here that in verse 12, that this promise was made with the future in mind. There's a reason why he didn't necessarily give the land of Canaan to Abraham during this time. Why? We're going to find out. It's, it's amazing. As, you, as we're reading this, the one theme that you're going to see is that God in his grace and in his sovereignty, what he is doing in and through every single story here that's mentioned through Abraham, the stories of Abraham and Sarah, the story of Isaac and, and Abraham on Mount Moriah, the story of Jacob, the story of Joseph, all of these things. I want you to think about this. In all of these stories, he's not just showing them that he loves them, although he is showing that. What he's doing is he is literally protecting and preserving the seed. Not only the seed that would lead to Jesus Christ himself, the bloodline. He is protecting the bloodline, not only so that Jesus could come forth according to his promises as savior of the whole world, but he also is protecting his seed and by this other word, by the same word seed, in other scriptures, he's referring specifically to the Jewish people themselves. And we're going to see in a moment, that word seed even applies to you and I as we're grafted into the nation of Israel. So it's, it's very important to, when reading the word, to, to kind of have this high level perspective of what's happening. And Jesus gives us the, he allows us to do that. Why? Because he told us in Luke 24 that all of the things in the Old Testament, starting with Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, all of those books 
they speak concerning me. The Jewish people read the Old Testament all the time. Even the disciples themselves in the presence of Christ himself read the Old Testament and yet didn't realize that the entirety of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. We do know, though, in Luke 24, that he did open the understanding of those on the road to Emmaus. I talked about the road to Emmaus, actually, the last time I taught here. Um, and, and then, and only then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, were they and are we able to see come alive Jesus Christ, literally like Jesus, like the person and the work of Jesus come alive within the pages of Scripture. And so as we go through this, you see that he is not just providing for his people, but that he is actually protecting and preserving the seed that lies within Abraham and Sarah and then to Isaac, and then the seed that lies within Jacob, and so on and so forth, so that Jesus could actually come and save the world, which was his purpose from the very beginning of time, when Adam and Eve fell to sin. And so in verse 13, we read, when they, that is Abraham and Sarah, this is kind of like way back in Genesis, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another, to another people, he permitted no one to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes, saying, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. If you don't know that story, I won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is the story, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 20, when Abraham is like, hey, Abimelech is going to think that you're really beautiful, Sarah, and I don't want him to kill me, and so I'm going to say that you're my sister. And if you follow that story, Abimelech did not know that Sarah was Abraham's wife. And so what happened was um, Abimelech found out because of a dream, and what God said to Abimelech is, I did not let you touch her. He did not let Abimelech touch her. Abimelech wanted to most likely because he took her away from Abraham, probably to make her his own wife or concubine of some sort. And yet, even in the act being accomplished in seizing Sarah from Abraham, God did not allow Abimelech to touch her. Why? Because he was protecting the seed. He was protecting the seed. And so here's an example in verses 13 through 15. Okay, so verse 16 through 25, we read about some, some other ways that he protects the seed. In verse 16, moreover, this is so, this is, this is crazy. Okay, Think about the foreknowledge and the sovereignty of God. I'm actually going to read verses 16 and 17 out of the ESV. Does anybody have the ESV in here? Okay, a couple of you. All right. So I just like how verses 16 and 17 are written in the ESV. So here it is. Verse 16. When he summoned, he, that is God, when he summoned, summoned a famine on the land... 
and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. That, the wordage in that is very fascinating because we know the story, the way it actually played out in history. Joseph was sold as a slave first, and then the famine came. But the way that God sees it here is that God actually on purpose made a famine happen so that Jacob and his sons would think, oh shoot, we're going to die in this land if we don't get some food. But all the while, God was already rising Joseph to power, giving him a dream, giving Pharaoh a dream, or sorry, giving him a dream, oh my gosh, giving Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, I'm sorry, um, in order to eventually create enough provision so that the nation of Israel, in at this time, only Jacob and his sons, that they would be able to journey to Egypt and actually not starve to death. Why? What was he doing? He was preserving his seed. He was preserving the seed that was in Jacob. And so we see in God's economy, in God's mind, he already determined that the famine was going to happen so that he could use the famine to drive them to Egypt so that they wouldn't die. But in the actual history of things, we, we don't really read it that way. But in hindsight, we see in verse 16 and 17 that God is the one who called for the famine. But in the, it's so funny in verse 17, he had sent a man ahead of them. So he had already sent Joseph ahead of Jacob and his brothers who would eventually follow Joseph back to Egypt. Them not even knowing that they were following his brother. But that's exactly what was happening. They were being drawn to the brother that they sold into slavery and didn't even recognize him when they got to him. And yet it was through all of that that God was preserving his seed. Okay, so let's go on to uh, verses 18 through uh, 22. This is just the story of, of kind of Joseph's, um, you know, struggles. Um, we don't really need to read that necessarily. Um, verse 18 says, they hurt his feet with fetters. He was laid in irons um, until, the time that his wor- uh, until the time that his word came to pass. He made him, in verse 21, Lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions to bind his princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. Okay, so... We are, we're really going to, um, oh, sorry, we're going to read verses 23 uh, through 25, and then we're going to stop uh, in Psalm 105, okay? So 23, verse 23, Israel also came into Egypt. So here we are, what I just said, right? So Jacob and the nation, they came to Egypt for provision, so that way they didn't starve. And Jacob dwelt in the land of Ham, Verse 24, he, that is the Lord, increased his people greatly and made them stronger than their enemies. And then verse 25, this is fascinating. He turned 
their heart, that is the Egyptians' hearts, to hate his own people, the Israelites, and even made them to deal craftily with his servants. And so, again, God in his sovereignty, what he is doing here is that he's bringing the people to Egypt so that they can just keep reproducing and having kids under bondage. However, it was in this context that God was able to grow and grow and grow and grow the nation of Israel so that unlike the time when God first gave Abraham the promise, when they were few in number, that God would give them the land. They weren't ready to take over the land yet because there weren't that many people. God had this whole story planned out that he would allow the people of Israel to grow and multiply, grow and multiply, so that twofold, there's probably a lot more than this, but this is just two observations I'm making, twofold, that he could show his power and his glory over Pharaoh and paganism through the plagues while also showing his provision and protection and preservation of the nation of Israel as they came out of the land of Egypt and then eventually into the land of Canaan. So this is, this is the history of God's people. And if you look at it, especially in Psalm 105, it becomes so clear that he is doing all of these things in order to protect his seed. And that is not just the seed of Jesus Christ, but also his people. Okay, so um, I want to make a couple little points here about Joseph. Um, I'm sure many of you have thought, maybe you have, maybe you haven't, I don't know. But Joseph, in my opinion, is one of the most, like, clear, the, the most clear picture of Jesus, in my, in my opinion, as, as I read it, okay? And the reason why, this is fascinating, when you think about all the types of Christ, like Moses and Joshua and Isaac, you know, as a type of Christ, obviously, like Abraham and Isaac, that being a picture of Jesus. When you think about all these different types of Jesus in the Old Testament, all of these people, they kind of have this, they kind of have this, you see the sin in their life. And I'm not saying that this is doctrine, and I'm not saying that you should go, you know, say this. But in my own devotions, as I was reading about the story of Joseph, I, I could be wrong. Show me after the service if I'm wrong. But I could not find a reference to Joseph sinning in the Old Testament. Now, 100% he sinned. He's a man like you and I. So we know that he sinned, of course, because he was fallen. But the Holy Spirit, perhaps, in his inspiration of the Holy Scripture, perhaps, I don't know, made Joseph to be even more clearly like Christ in that to point to like a sinless man. And again, Joseph sinned, of course. But 
there are so many examples of Joseph being a type of Christ. Um, and I mean, I, I'd really, I could get into it, but I won't. I mean, we obviously know Joseph being sold by his brothers, just like Jesus was sold by his brothers, the Pharisees and the Jewish nation, right? Uh, handed over to a people not their own uh, when he was sold, Joseph, when he was sold to Egypt for money, just like Jesus. Um, I mean, there's so many, so many examples. Um, his brothers eventually bowing down to him is a, is a picture-perfect um, example of the Jewish nation eventually bowing down and calling Christ their Lord and their Messiah. I mean, there's so many examples in the life of Joseph, but specifically as it relates to us Gentiles being grafted in, this is fascinating. So Joseph is vindicated and rises to power, having all authority given to him by Pharaoh. Joseph is given a Gentile bride. And together they have Ephraim and Manasseh. Think about this. Ephraim and Manasseh were considered the, some of the largest tribes of the nation. And by being given this Gentile bride, these tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, they are a mixed multitude. They are a mixture of Jew and Gentile, which is a beautiful picture of the new man as described in Ephesians, where Jew and Gentile become one. So just to give you some proof text, because it, you know, might sound crazy, Genesis 46 verse 20 says, and to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. So this was a daughter of like a pagan priest given to Joseph, and they had Ephraim and Manasseh. And then think about this. This is what is just, just knocks it out of the park. The mixed multitude, if you will, Ephraim and Manasseh, were literally adopted by Jacob. Like, that's crazy. So if you, if you think about the 12 tribes of Israel, okay, you don't see Joseph in there. Who do you see? You see Ephraim and Manasseh. It's because Ephraim and Manasseh, they represented a mixed multitude, part Gentile, into the nation of Israel. Listen to this. This is crazy. Genesis 48 verse 5 says, and now, this is Jacob talking to Joseph, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Listen, this is beautiful. True adoption words here, okay? Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. So there's not a difference. Ephraim and Manasseh are mine, Jacob is saying, in the same way that my true, my own pure blood sons are, Reuben and Simeon. And then I started to think about, then I started to think about, thinking about the Israelites coming out of Egypt, and I started thinking about the new man, as talked about in Ephesians, being really Jew and Gentile coming together, 
And then I just, I thought, as I was studying, this verse just popped in my head, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Do you realize that God still continued on in history, preserving his seed, and in his sovereignty, isn't it crazy that God chose to have Joseph and Mary actually flee from the land to Egypt, Egypt again, in order that he, along with the other massacre of the innocents, as the historical event is called, didn't land on Jesus himself and that he was spared, that the life of Jesus was saved. And then when all of that was over and it was safe for him to return, the scriptures say in the New Testament, out of Egypt, I called my son. So he, he, so he sends him to Egypt to protect him, to protect his seed, and then eventually calls him out of Egypt so that he could begin his ministry of reconciling the whole world to himself. Okay, so, so when you think about out of Egypt, I've called my son, there's another word that, that the new man is called. And what is that? That's called the body of Christ. What is the church? The church is literally the body of Christ. And so we, as the body of Christ, are now made up because we've been grafted in. We, we know in Romans about the, the, the olive tree, right? So there's a beautiful olive tree representing the nation of Israel. Because of their unbelief, branches are broken off of the tree, and there is this wild olive tree over here that represents the Gentiles. Those branches are taken over to the spot within the native olive tree, grafted into the native olive tree, so that now this native olive tree is a mixture of the nation of Israel and the Gentiles, but then it doesn't stop there. The fact that that happened, the fact that the Jew, part of the Jewish, the, the olive tree was broken off and given to the Gentiles, Paul tells us that that very act of being grafted in is actually going to be the very thing that causes all of Israel to be saved in the end because they're going to be provoked to jealousy. So you think about like this sovereign act of God that God purposed, he purposely shielded the eyes of the Jewish people during the life of Christ so that they wouldn't believe, so that the door of the gospel could open to the Gentiles so that they could believe, be grafted in, and then at the end of the day, and Paul in Romans says, if you think that the fullness of the Gentiles is going to be something, think about the fullness of all of Israel being saved as something. And there's a lot of like theological debate surrounding this, but when you just read Romans and, and you see his plan for the nation of Israel and the people of Israel, it is, it is fascinating and so faith-building to see that historically his hand is all over it. His hand is all over the pages of history. And we can see that so clearly here in Psalm 105 and particularly in the actual life story of Joseph. 
And it's so interesting, too, because Joseph, like Genesis gives so much space to the details of the life of Joseph, which is so cool. And it's like he's doing that so that we can spend chapters and chapters and chapters with our minds being blown about how clearly he was working in and through history to preserve and bring forth the gift of his son, Jesus, so that not just the Jewish people could be saved, but that all who would call upon the name of the Lord would be saved. Okay, so, um, so we've talked about that being grafted in um, and uh, talked about the olive tree, good. We've got about five more minutes. Um, and so here we are. So this is kind of like the age that we find ourselves in. We talked about the history of Israel. We talked about the Gentiles being grafted in. And then what? I mean, what happened? What happened after the book of Acts? Church history happened. That's what happened. And, and it is so beautiful to see how God continues to preserve the bloodline. And what do I mean, what do I mean when I say the bloodline? Well, when you think about your own personal heritage and you think about how you came here and your family, you know, great grandpa Jones gave birth to, you know, grandma Margaret who gave birth to mom, mom gave birth to me. What do you do? You follow the bloodline. That's what you do, right? Well, what do we do when we want to look at our spiritual ancestors? It's very clear we go back to the Bible, but what about everything from Acts until today? This is the history and the story of God's providence and provision over the church of Jesus Christ, that he is commissioned as being, taking part, the ministry of reconciliation. And it, it's like me standing up here sharing this with you, it just doesn't really do it justice um, because honestly, I had zero interest whatsoever in church history. I don't know. It's just like just something, he just gave me this love for it. And I'm telling you, like after researching it and learning more about it and just seeing story after story after story of God's sovereign rule over the history of the world and preserving his word and preserving his people down to the present, and then in 1948, nation be, uh, Israel becoming a nation, like it's just so fascinating and so life-giving and so faith-building to see that actually play out in history. And so, um, okay, so, so really quick, j just a, a quick, little, quick little history on, um, on, on the pilgrims. So, well, first, sorry, first, I want to say this. Um, we want to follow the blood of Jesus. So we're, what, the bloodline, right? So when we're thinking about our, our actual physical heritage and our, and our ancestors, right, we follow the bloodline, right? But in the same way, Whatever the blood is applied, when we follow the bloodline of our spiritual ancestors, what do I mean by that? I mean that wherever the blood is applied, when the blood is applied to you, you are now part of the bloodline. And when you preach the gospel or when you bear a son or bear a daughter and you and your wife disciple that child into the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in the truth of his word, what are you doing? You are, you are literally continuing the bloodline 
of Jesus, the gospel. Like there's a reason why the, there's a reason why the Jewish babies didn't get circumcised later on. I mean, obviously, it's because that would have been really painful, but God wanted to get across this idea that I want you to circumcise a baby who knows nothing about me yet, who's never said a prayer in their life, who's never recited a Bible verse ever again, or who had never recited a Bible verse, who had never made any profession of faith, but I want you to give that baby, that helpless baby, a sign a sign of circumcision to symbolize that baby being part of the, of the covenant, covenant children. So when we, when we bear sons and daughters and we make a commitment before God and our friends and family that we are going to disciple our children in the nourishment and in the word and in the statutes and in the laws of God, most just the gospel, what we're doing is we are literally continuing on the bloodline so that when we're long dead and gone, I think Pastor Ray said this one time, that the gospel, the gospel could, I don't want to quote him wrongly, but like he basically said, if, if we all just stopped believing and no one had the gospel anymore, like the gospel wouldn't go forth. So, so the gospel, in a sense, is like one generation away from being extinct. But we know through history that God's never going to let that happen. Why? Because he is preserving his seed. He is preserving the gospel. He is preserving the bloodline. And that bloodline is now the new man, which is you and I. And through discipleship, through proclaiming the gospel, we are bearing fruit. God is bearing fruit within us to life and repentance. And that is the purpose of our life, is to glorify God, is to enjoy him forever. There's uh, one last thing I want to share with you. Okay, so um, uh, go back to Psalm, you don't need to go back there, but I'm just going to read the last verse of Psalm 105, or last couple of verses. Uh, okay, verse 42 says, this is kind of like sums, sums it all up, okay? For he remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. Verse 43 says, he brought out his people with joy, his chosen ones with gladness. Verse 44, this is fascinating. He gave them the lands of the Gentiles, and they inherited the labor of the nations, that they might observe his statutes and keep his laws. It's beautiful. And so here we are. So I'm not saying this is like an actual, I'm not saying this is like an interpretation of this verse, but like in a way, in a sense, we are here. And we have inherited a land that we, we came to. We came to so that we could worship God freely. Do you know that King Henry VIII in England, which is why the separatists separated from the Church of England, declared himself, this is insane to me, declared himself the head of the church in England. Literally, on paper, 
he is declared as the head of the Church of England. Eventually, Elizabeth came to power and was like, no, that's, that's theologically inaccurate. I'm going to call myself the supreme governor of the Church of England. Still not quite accurate, but a lot better than just straight up calling yourself the head of the church, okay? Um, and so that's the reason why the separatists came here, so that they could worship freely um, in the way that they felt like the Holy Spirit was leading them to, according to their reading of the Bible. And so, in, in, in closing of all of just this, this amazing historical and theological evidence that God is sovereign over all things and that God truly has providence and provision over his people, I want to refer to one, uh, one question it's in this thing called uh, the Shorter Catechism. It's, the, it's, it's basically this work. Uh, it's this like theological, you know, confession of faith that was created in, in 1647, I think, about 27 years after the pilgrims uh, arrived here. But um, it took years and years and years and to, to create this confession of faith. But um, one of, one of the, the very first question in what's called the Shorter Catechism is this. It says, what is... What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Does anybody know the answer to that question? I see someone that knows the answer to that question. Uh, okay, so the answer to that question is, okay, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And then another question from another catechism that should just warm our hearts. Another one is, what is our only hope in life and death? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God. Beautiful, beautiful truths. And so I want to close with a song. This song is written by, um, if every time I've taught here so far, I've always ended with a song by the same artist. And it's just because I really like the artist. Um, and there's a, there's a song called Rejoice. And it is by, um, it is by Keith and Kristen Getty. And it is a song about rejoicing in everything that we've talked about, basically. Um, and so that's what we're going to get started with. Um, and before we do that, I'm just going to pray for us really quick. Father, um, I just, I want to thank you, Lord. I ask in the name of Jesus um, that whatever was said tonight, Lord, um, that, that your Holy Spirit um, would settle it, your word in our hearts, Lord, that when we experience difficulty, persecution, seasons of our life when we don't feel like you are ruling and reigning and when we don't feel like you are providing for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see that no matter what is happening down here, that does not change who you are. And your word is settled in heaven, and when everything else passes away, and your word 
remains. We can look to your word and remember that you were, are, and always will be good and gracious. There is no act of graciousness and goodness that has ever been like the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, to us. And so, Father, I pray that for anybody in this room that does not know you, Lord, that has not made a public confession of faith, believing that your son Jesus is Lord and that your son Jesus physically rose from the dead victorious over sin and death. Father, I pray that you, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, would move this person to repentance and that you would bring them in to the family of God, that you would bring them into the new man, into the olive tree, into the bloodline. That is our prayer. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we ask that you would hear our prayers. We are so thankful for your goodness over us. May we remember your abundance and your bountiful provision over us as we celebrate with our families or as we celebrate with not many people. Regardless of what we're doing, Lord, I pray that tomorrow would just be a formal day of thanksgiving and prayer unto you for your goodness over us. In the name of the powerful and in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.